when bad things happen to good people. Now you wish you would have stayed home. I'm kidding. When bad things happen to good people. So you go to a cave. We're going to be talking a lot about caves today. So you go to Oregon Caves or maybe you venture over to Klamath area and head into the lava tubes, that area. A lot of times on the outside of the caves there will be a sign posted. Uh, inside this cave it will be dark and damp and cold and there will be low um, heights. You might want to wear a helmet. You might want to have a light. So you venture deep into this cave and you get in there and you say, why is it so cold in here? It's cave. And then you get in a little and you ask the ranger. You know, it just sure seems like there's not a lot of natural light in here. Is there any way we could throw down you know, a, a sunroof, a skylight, something, a little bit of sunlight in here? It's a cave. That's what caves are like. And we're going to look at this morning an experience David had in a cave and try and see how the Bible might lead our hearts to recognize what life in Christ is like. Because sometimes our concerns with what's going on in our life in Christ is not something's wrong, it's everything's right, and we don't, as it turns out, like what it looks like to have life in Christ. So, when bad things happen to good people, a bad thing happened to a good person, King uh, David. So, First Samuel chapter 24. King David and his men are hiding in the back of a cave. But before we get to this cave, we need to recognize a couple of things about what's going on. Who is king in Israel? A guy named King Saul. He has been anointed by Samuel, the prophet, as king over Israel, the first king over Israel. And he had exactly two qualifications for the job of king. What were his two qualifications? Tall, good looking. That's it. It's all brought to the table. And literally, that's all he brought to the table. So he wasn't a good king. God, in fact, rejected King Saul as king over Israel, not because he didn't measure up and not because he wasn't good enough and not because he didn't go to Sunday school. He rejected King Saul as king over Israel because King Saul rejected God. That's what happened. King Saul had decided he didn't like what God was up to and King Saul was going to do things his own way. In fact, I might even suggest God gave King Saul exactly what he wanted, less of God. Because King Saul had rejected God, and so God had rejected King Saul as king over Israel. In the meantime, David is a shepherd, a young boy, shepherding sheep out in who knows where. And Samuel happens upon his home at God's leading and ends up anointing King David as what? King over Israel. Who was king over Israel? Saul. Who was anointed king over Israel? David. So immediately upon being anointed king over Israel, David's life changed. He lived a well-appointed life of luxury and power and influence, right? Wrong. We're going to discover there was a long road marked by, in this particular occasion, a dark cave of difficulty and challenge between his anointing as king and when he actually became king. Saul became king, or Saul was king, King David was anointed king. In the meantime, David kills a giant. David becomes a musician in the king's court, King Saul's court. King David becomes one of his generals. Saul becomes jealous of David, tries to kill him with a spear a couple of times. Luckily, David's good at dodging spears. King Saul gives him an appointment over his military and sends him out on the most dangerous missions in the hopes that... He will be killed 
And David in all of these missions is profoundly successful. So successful that women of Israel write a song about him and it's a top 40 hit. It is so popular, the people of the Philistines have heard of this song, we discover later. And what I don't know the melody of the song, but the words are easy to remember. Saul has killed his thousands. King David has killed his tens of thousands. King Saul did not have this song on his summer playlist. He didn't like this song because it showed God was with King David and not with King Saul. King Saul tries to kill David a number of times. Finally, David has to flee for his life out of his window, disguising an idol with goat hair in his bed to escape. Long story short, he escapes, and he runs away from King Saul, and a number of people flock to him. In fact, hundreds of men follow him and their families. The Bible later describes these men this way. They were distressed, indebted, and discontented. This is the crew he gets to roll with. Distressed, indebted, and discontented. Maybe you've been working at a job at some point and they hire a new guy. And for the first week, all he does is gripe about his old job. You ever met that guy? Maybe you're that guy. I don't know. What do you know is is just days around the corner. When he shifts from complaining about his old job to complaining about his new job. Because generally the complainer is the issue, not what he's complaining about. So this is who David is rolling with. The distressed, the indebted, the discontented. Don't you think at some point David would have prayed, God, you anointed me king. I am now on the run, and I'm on the run with these yahoos. And you don't think, I'm not kidding. A little bit later on, David is going to be rolling out with the Philistines In the meantime, his family, along with his men's family, are in a little town called Ziklag. The Amalekites invade Ziklag and kidnap all of their families. When they return to Ziklag and discover this, what do his distressed, indebted, and discontented men decide they ought to do? Stone David to death. This is his crew. And this is who he is hiding in a cave with. Anointed as king, faithful to God, hanging out in the back of a cave with distressed, discontented complainers. Saul is pursuing him to kill him. He's hiding in a place called um, En Gedi. According to the Bible in 1 Samuel 24, it is called Wild Goat's Rocks. And the only reason I bring that up is I think it's a cool name. Wild Goat's Rocks. I think if you were to open a restaurant, that would be a fantastic name. I've got a picture of Engedi. Took this a uh, number of years back. This is on, of course, the western shore of the Dead Sea. This is on the northeastern shore of the Dead Sea. I don't know, maybe a quarter mile, maybe a half a mile off of the shore of the Dead Sea. Uh, somebody asked me earlier, is this near where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered? Yeah, 15 miles, maybe. Uh, to the north of this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. So this is in Getty. This is the region in which David was hiding. Obviously not these caves in particular for a number of reasons, but notice the caves. Can you see the little holes in the walls? There's the little caves. The way this soil works, it would rain, and the water runs over the faces of this sort of uh, gritty sedimentary rock, and the water creates this erosion movement, and after a while, it creates these caves that get hollowed out 
uh, into the rock. And so David is in this very wilderness region. There is water, but it's very um, brown and, and remote. And, uh, and there are all these little places where you can, can hide. All right, uh, Laura, put the picture away. Otherwise, they'll just look at the picture the whole time. So David is hiding up in this area of En Gedi. And the reason this is important for David, he's got maybe 600 guys with him. Saul has showed up with 3,000 men. So in this particular region, the tactical advantage is to the one who is hiding, not to the one who is seeking. Because of the narrow valleys and the elevated positions of some of the caves, the one hiding in the caves has the greater advantage of defending themselves over the one who is invading this area. This would be a very difficult uh, place to conquer. That's why uh, the people of Israel later in a place called Masada, just to the south of this, that was one of their final stands because it's a very difficult place to invade. It took the Romans years to, to, to invade uh, Masada. So here's David hiding out because in this particular area, Area, the, the numbers of troops that Saul has don't really matter. He could have brought 10,000 people. He could only get so many people through a narrow passage at a single time. So David has a tactical advantage. Another thing about these caves before we get to what happened in 1 Samuel 24, this is described as a sheepfold. He happened upon sheepfolds by the way. So here's what shepherds would do. They would find some of these caves that were very near a flat spot or the bottom of the valley or the ravine. And what they would do is they would build a fence around the mouth of the cave, the opening of the cave. They would use rocks or sticks or brush and they'd build a big uh, sort of fenced in area. So what they do at night is they get all their sheep into this fenced in area and then where do they go? just right into the cave. So all night long, they can, hel- they can spend their night in a cave, light a cook fire, get out of the rain or the wind or the cold, and yet their sheep, they know, are well protected and covered. What else are the shepherds able to do when they have a cave that they routinely go to at night to get some sleep, to eat, and make sure their sheep are well cared for? What else can they build? An outhouse. They can provide a spot in their cave where they can comfortably use the restroom. If you've ever been on a long hike, and I'm not just going to make potty humor all, all morning, only half the morning. I'm kidding. That's, I'm not going to. Uh, they, they would have, it, it's very inconvenient to have to use the restroom out in the wild. Here in the cave, they can have a spot where they, they have some privacy and some comfort. So when, the, uh, when King Saul is walking by and he sees a sheepfold cave, He knows he has a place that he is able to go in privacy to do what everybody's got to do from time to time. And why might I suggest he's going into this cave to use the restroom versus take a nap, eat a meal, confer with his generals, these sorts of things? Because he goes in all by himself. And there is only one thing someone as important as Saul would do with nobody around. If he was going in to take a nap, Abner would be right next to him. If he was going in to eat lunch, His cupbearer would be there to test his food. If he was going in there to have conference, people would be with him. The only thing he's going to do with no one else around is what you do with no one else around. In fact, I might suggest the Bible confirms this later on when he is sleeping. How do they arrange themselves when they're sleeping? He is at the center of the camp. And all the soldiers are completely around him. So King Saul ventures into this sheepfold cave. And when he gets in, he sees exactly the spot that's been set up for just that purpose. And for a king, this is very convenient and and great. So he goes over to relieve himself, as the Bible says. Can you believe it? 
This is the cave that David and all his men are hiding in the back. They're all in the back. It's not just David. David and this is a pretty good sized cave. They're hiding in the back. And now all of a sudden, David's men get religion. David, the Lord has done this for you. That's what they they say. They make a theological argument to David. Here is the day the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. That's verse 4 of 1 Samuel 24. David, hearing their argument, that seems reasonable. The Bible says I should kill him. He crawls up stealthily, but decides not to kill him. Instead, he cuts off the corner of his robe and sneaks back. Saul concludes his business and then leaves the cave. And now it gets a little bit strange. David then exits the cave and makes himself known to Saul, which is crazy. Up to this point, Saul doesn't know where he is. David now betrays his position and the position of all of his men. And he holds up that piece of his garment and says, King Saul, look, God has given you into my hand and I chose not to kill you. Now, we must understand what it means for him to cut the robe. First of all, it's important to recognize that the robe wasn't just any old garment. The uh, Jewish code indicated you had to keep your robe in a particular condition. In particular, this related to this story. The corners of your robe were intended to have what? Tassels. So it says in particular, uh, David cut off the corner of his robe. In many ways, Saul's robe no longer complied with the way a robe is supposed to be worn according to the Jewish code. But even more than that, I might suggest this, as one writer said. It is, uh, is, the, it is as though he walked up to a four-star general, grabbed the four-star emblem on his shirt, ripped it off, and put it on his own shirt. The way he cut this robe was intended to communicate, Saul, you and I both know, you're not king, I am. That's what cutting of this robe meant. This wasn't just a practical joke. This wasn't just, look, I ruined the king's robe. This was a statement to King Saul, you aren't king, I am king, and we all know it. And look how the Bible describes David's attitude in verse 5. David, afterward, his heart struck him. His conscience struck him because of what? He had done. Why would David's conscience strike him? He said this to his men The Lord should forbid that I should do this thing. He is the Lord's anointed. I should not have put my hand out against him because he is the Lord's anointed. So David then persuaded his men not to kill him. Here's what David was telling his men Whose job is it to decide when King Saul's reign ends? That's God's job. Whose job is it to decide when I should be king on the throne? That's God's job. And in that moment, cutting his robe, David's conscience was stricken. He was trying to take control of something that was God's job to take care of. So David's men tried to convince him to kill him. David doesn't kill him. And then he betrays his position to King Saul because of his conscience. Listen to his speech to King Saul. This is 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 8. David got up and said, My Lord King. Saul looked up and and saw David. And David was bowed down with his face to the earth. David said this to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. 
Some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And he gave a little side eye to the sons of Zariah right there. Joab. But I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, I have the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the robe and did not kill you, you can see there's no wrong in me. Listen to what he says in verse 12 of 1 Samuel 24. May the Lord judge between me and you. So David doesn't gloss over. He doesn't pretend like everything's okay. He doesn't like Saul, pretend like Saul hasn't done anything wrong. What he does here is he says, you know what? God knows everything that's going on between you and I. May the Lord judge between you and I. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord take his revenge. And he repeats it down in verse 15. May the Lord judge and give sentence between you and I, between me and you. May the Lord plead my cause. So what David decides to do here in the moment when he cut the robe, he thought, I'm going to show this guy who's boss. And now his conscience has been stricken and he realizes, I'm not boss. God is. And I'm going to trust that God is going to carry my case as it should be carried. And King Saul replies in this way. He says, is that your voice, my son David? Now King Saul sort of seemed to track between really acting very, very strange, kind of like he wasn't fully in touch with his mental faculties, to some sense of lucidity and compassion. So he has swung from murderous rage to, you're my, my favorite son. He says this to David, you are more righteous than I, you have repaid me good for the evil I have done to you. And this is what King Saul says in verse 20, I know that you will be king. Can you believe that? King Saul here in this moment says out loud in front of all of his men, David, you will be king. Who should be king after Saul? Jonathan. And he has just said to everybody around, he knows David will be king. Verse 21, swear to me, David, that you will not cut off my offspring after me. And David does just that. David is anointed king. He spends years running from Saul and finds himself cutting off his robe while he's going to the restroom. And the, and the situation is still yet to get worse. We read Psalm 57 already. I want to read the other cave psalm, Psalm 142. And the reason I think these psalms are really, really important is to recognize when we read the narrative from 1 Samuel 24, we tend to get the feeling that David is just sort of drifting through these really challenging events with his chest out and his chin high. I will trust the Lord, right? Then we read the Psalms and we really get a picture into what's going on in his heart and his life. This is a man who is in pain and who is suffering. Psalm 142, a masculine of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know the way. You know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and, I, and see, there is none who take notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. 
Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of a prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Look at a couple of things in this psalm as David is in the back of the cave. I pour out my complaint before him. I love that. You know why I love that? I love when I read in the psalms people doing things I feel bad about. Have you ever had that time in your life and you're praying and you're seeking the Lord and you're just whining? And then at the end, oh, I'm sorry, God, I shouldn't be complaining. Okay, I guess, go ahead. Here's the thing I like to remember. Complain or don't complain, God already knows what's going on in your heart. You may as well just tell him. I love what he says. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Even though God knows all the troubles of David's heart and his life and his situation, he goes through in detail and explains to God exactly what is troubling him. I got King Saul on the outside of a cave. Secondly, I'm in a cave. Thirdly, you stuck me in a cave with these yahoos. Really, God, that anointing. Next time you're going around anointing kings, God, how about my older brother? He's fine. He's tall too. And he's complaining to the Lord. And if you think David, again, he was just the stiff upper lip kind of guy, look at verse 3 of Psalm 142. My spirit faints within me. He's reached the end of his rope. In fact, he reached the end of the rope, lost his grip, fell off of it, and that was 20 minutes ago. And now he says, I got nothing. My spirit is fainting within me. Look to the right and see, there is none who take notice of me. Look, he's in a cave with 600 of his closest friends. How are these guys? You know the three features of his closest friends. Discontented, distressed, indebted. And he looks around, nobody gives a rip about what's going on. He says, look, nobody notices me. Quick aside. It's interesting to be in a room like this reading a passage like that, isn't it? How many times have we as Christians walked into a room like this with significant fainting going on in our own hearts and we look around and we say, nobody has a clue what's going on. This has happened to all of us. We might describe it as feeling completely alone in a crowded room. This is a universal experience where we say, God, here I am, and these are the yahoos you stuck me with. They don't even care what's going on in my life. And this is David saying, verse 5, I cry out to you, O Lord. You are my portion. You are my refuge in the land of the living. This is David crying out. I might tell us and remind us, when we find ourselves on the road from here to the kingdom, and our soul is fainting, and we're totally alone, this is the kind of prayer you want to pray. Here's something you might even want to do if you like uh, tips and tricks. Write down Psalm 142. And the next time you're having one of those days or those weeks or those months or those years and you don't even know how to pray, just open up to Psalm 142. Say, I don't got the words. David does and the Holy Spirit does and I'm going to make this my prayer if I don't have a prayer. This great prayer for the heavy heart. David, in his worry and in his suffering, crouched in the back of the cave, cries out to God with all the honesty and transparency he can muster and says to God, you alone are my refuge. If you don't save me, no one will. If you don't get me through this, no one will. One last thing before we move on to some verses in the Newer Testament. 
what I want us to look at is the travel, the life of David from anointing to king. And what I want us to take away from this moment here in the cave is the recognition that just because he got anointed king, his problems didn't end. In fact, his life got harder before it got better. The road from anointing to kingdom was a road of challenge and difficulty and, in fact, suffering. And we're going to talk about how that is parallel to the Christian life here in just a moment. But I want to remind us of just this one little thing about David that is true of us. When we think of our life someday as believers, we get to live in heaven with Christ forever. Every moment of that time will be a time that is filled with joy and peace and happiness to engage, to worship God with no inhibition. We will be filled with joy to worship God without being tempted to sin. We will be filled with joy in whatever activity we're engaging in to give glory to God. We will be filled with joy to spend every moment we can with the Lord, which is every moment. So in that time, we will finally be in that place where all we will want to do is worship God, and we will. So in this time, I might say this, this is the only place we get to worship God where it's hard. Because once you cross to that side, it's not going to be hard anymore. This is the time. This is the, just this brief life, however many years God gives you. This is the time where we get to worship God and it hurts. Where we have to say no to something. Where we have to muster up the strength. Where we have to say, I got to get up early to read my Bible. Or I got to go to church and engage with, as David might say in the cave, those people. You would never say that. Of course, we're talking about first service. We all know that. It's hard to get up. You say, today in the trials and tribulations of my life, I got to recognize that God is in charge. That's hard. But this is that one unique time. And in the span of all of your history, which is a very long history, it just hasn't happened yet. This is the smallest part of it. And it's the only time you get to worship where it's hard. And I know that doesn't sound like fun, but one day we'll look at that as a privilege. When when bad things happen to good people, it's a joy to know we can worship God in a way now that in heaven we won't be able to. Okay, I want to look at a couple of verses in the next 30 minutes. I'm kidding. It'll take 40. Um, God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. His promise was this. He said, your son will be on your throne forever. Your throne will never end. We've said it this way before, and it's worth remembering. The only way to have a kingdom that never ends is to have a king that never dies. And so God was making a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. He will have a son who is king who will live forever. And that son made clear by the gospel writers is Jesus. That's why there are those long genealogies in Matthew and Luke making very clear Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is on his throne. Jesus will never die. And so we get to participate today in the covenant promises to David because when we put our faith in Christ for forgiveness, the Bible says we are in Christ, a royal priesthood as we read in the epistle of Peter. Jesus is the eternal kingdom promised to David and by faith we join that eternal kingdom by receiving forgiveness in Christ. So knowing that I want to show us some parallels between David's anointing to sitting on his throne with our anointing before we get to the kingdom of Christ. So let's start. I have four passages to look at. Is that okay? First John 
2, 21. 1 John 2, 21. I'm going to skip down to verse 24 just for the sake of time. Kind of shorten it up here. 1 John 2.24. The verses won't be up on the screen, sorry. Let what you heard from the beginning... Hold on. See, I should have worn this. The podium is too close to my eyes. Here we go. Starting verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Verse 27. But the anointing that you received from him, talking of Jesus, abides in you, and you have no need for anyone uh, to teach you. The anointing you received from him, Jesus, abides in you. Who abides in everyone who has put their faith in Christ for forgiveness? Christ, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. So what we're talking about here is an anointing, that is a a, a receiving from God, an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Everybody in Christ by faith is anointed by the Holy Spirit. When we put our faith in Christ, it's just something that happens. An anointing is something that says we are identified as. When King David was anointed, he was now identified as King of Israel. Having the Holy Spirit, we are now identified as sons of God, sons of the King with the Holy Spirit within us. So we have been anointed by the Holy Spirit and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Here's what it says. His anointing teaches you about everything. And it's true and it's not a lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in Him. So in Christ by faith, we receive the Holy Spirit. And so we are in His kingdom and we anticipate His kingdom. And what we need to know is what happens between the anointing and the kingdom. We need to have right expectations. Just like David, anointed to be king, he needed to have good expectations. What's going to happen between when I'm anointed and when I become king? Do you think he would have had any idea of what was going to happen to him between those years? He would have had no idea. Thankfully for us, we know exactly what is going to happen because Jesus explained it to us in excruciating detail. And I use the word excruciating on purpose. Here we go. You ready? Yeah, we're not sure now. We're hesitating. Okay, we're about to go in the cave. Matthew 16. Here we go. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 24. Jesus told his disciples this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There you go. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So here, he's laying this out very, very simply. To follow Christ by faith is to follow him in a cross-shaped way. Jesus saves us by dying on the cross to pay for our sin. He gives us hope by rising from the dead. And he says to follow him by faith is to follow him in the shape of a cross. He didn't die on the cross to give us a comfortable life. He died on the cross to give us eternal life. And he wants us to know very clearly the Son of Man is going to come with his angels. Here's an important word. Are you ready? 
Then. When is then? Not now. Very specific, isn't it? He is going to come with his angels and then the glory of God. So what do we do between now, cross-shaped life, and then glory of God? It's walk by faith with Christ, knowing our life is going to be shaped like a cross. Jesus saved us with a cross, so we live our life knowing that. To be like him, we are going to endure hardship and difficulty. Some of that is persecution, but other parts of it, most of it for us maybe, is just living in a sin-broken world, which means there's going to be difficulty and trials. Here's a profound theological phrase I came up with. You may want to write it down. I don't often tell you my thoughts are profound. And usually it's because I'm being sarcastic. Here it is. A cross is not comfy. It's not. Jesus said, take up your cross. Not your gilded cross. Not your padded cross. Not your air-conditioned cross. Not your cross fitted with streaming services. Take up your cross. All he is merely doing here, he is not saying do everything you can to have as terrible a life as you can. What he is saying, I want to explain to you, when you go into the cave, it's dark and it's damp and it's cold. That's the nature of caves. So what does it look like to put faith in Christ and say, I'm going to follow you, anointed by the Spirit from Him, from here till then, that is, the day of glory. It's cross-shaped. He's doing us a great service by providing very clear expectations of what it means to follow Jesus. There will be times of great trial and difficulty. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and he said this to them. Great crowds, what does that mean? Lots of people were hanging around him. Jesus had a different view on crowds than we do. We look at crowds and we say something important must be happening. Jesus looks at crowds and says, how do I thin this out? We were in a shopping uh, little center place when we were on vacation, and we were walking around, all of a sudden we walked by the store, and there's a big line outside the store. Right? So what do you first think? Oh, what's going on over there? Well, I've got to check it out. So we walk over there, and we discover there's nothing going on at the store. It's just this particular store and this particular shopping mall had determined, for whatever reason, it's fine, they were only going to allow a certain number of people in their store at a time likely related to COVID-19, right? And so because they were limiting the number of people in the store, there was a line to get in the store. Same store, same shoes. There wasn't even a sale. There's a line. And here we are going, oh, what's going on over here? That's what people do. Jesus sees a line and he says, I got to figure out how to get rid of that line. So here he goes. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Starts to thin out a little bit, doesn't it? People on the edges start to walk away. Verse 20, it gets worse. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be his own disciple. Gets a little thinner. Which of you, desiring to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and figure out how much it's going to cost? And this is what Jesus is telling us. If you want to be anointed by the Spirit, by faith, be aware. The road from faith to glory is cross-shaped. It's not a gilded cross. And this may not uh, sit well with us that Jesus would drive people away, but Jesus wanted to be very clear. To walk with Christ in this world before glory is to walk a cross-shaped path, just like David walked after his 
anointing. Last verse, Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise. Beware of men, they will deliver you over to courts, flog you in their synagogues, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious about what you're going to say, for what you will say will be given to you. It is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, the father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. For the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 25, it is enough for the disciples to be like his teacher. If they have called the master, who's that? Jesus. Of the house of Beelzebul, who's that? Satan. If they call Jesus evil, how much more will they malign those of his household? Couldn't be any more clear. Jesus says the road from anointing to glory is a road marked with difficulty. This is what we ought to expect. Here's the thing. None of us should be wishing for the harshest of sufferings, and if we're not enduring difficulty, praise God for the blessing in his life. We should not go looking for it. But what we need to recognize is when the trial comes, whether from persecution or just from living in a sin-ruined world, we need to recognize this is the nature of the road to home. That's the road we're on. And so often the devil tries to get into our ear and say, what's wrong with you that this is happening? And we should be able to go to the scripture and say, what's wrong with me? That's the road I'm on. It's the road marked with trial before glory comes. God is with us by his grace, and the suffering we endure will not be for nothing. Okay, three quick things, and then um, we'll close with 17 songs. Can we trim it to 15? Okay, thanks. Um, First thing about God. Sometimes an active faith, an active worship in God is a willingness to wait. Maybe I'll put it this way just briefly. When our actions are driven by pursuit of comfort and ease, they generally will not find rest in God. I use the word generally because sometimes we will. But if our motivation... If our actions are driven by a pursuit of comfort and ease, we will, in general, miss real rest, which comes from rest in God. Sometimes, by His grace, faith is exercised in a willingness to say, I need to wait on the Lord in this. I need to wait and see what God is up to in this. I need to be willing to evaluate, are my actions here designed to find more of God, or are my actions and efforts here designed to find more of comfort and ease? And you might say, you know, there's nothing wrong with being comfortable, there's nothing wrong with ease. Now what I'm saying, just giving you an idea here. When our actions are driven by a pursuit of that which we want, my experience has been, they don't often find God. Just a little nugget there for you. Second one, Matthew chapter 5. What about our enemies? Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for our 
persecutors. We need to recognize that in the course of our life, in this place, we aren't home yet. There will be people over us in authority who will be in rebellion to God, and our job is to trust God who sees. Remember King Saul. Remember Pontius Pilate. Remember a number of Roman authorities in the life of Christ and the Apostle Paul. We trust God so we don't have to be in control of this broken world. We trust God so we can be at ease even when the world is getting sideways on us, even when those in authority are in rebellion against God. We can even come to God with this prayer, God, you see and you know, you you judge between us and them. Okay, last thing is this. One of the things we see about King David is he recognized something about the people of God that, that Saul missed. King David understood he was king of God's people, whereas King Saul was king of King Saul's people. So King David saw his role as king over the people of God, where King Saul in his selfishness saw himself as king over his kingdom. What's my point? David, not always and not perfectly, he was a sinful man as well. David's goal as a man over a man pursuing God's own heart, he was pursuing God's agenda for God's people. The reason God powerfully worked in David's life is because he was pursuing God's agenda. Over and over again, he pursued and sought the counsel of God. So here's the, it's a simple question, just think about your Bible. Is God, God's agenda our agenda? Is God's agenda our agenda? What's God's agenda? Go and make disciples. It's not complicated. Love God. Love others as yourself. Why is this make, why is this a big deal? Because a lot of times the suffering we're enduring in the Lord is simply this, that God has not figured out yet he needs to fund our agenda. We have been praying and praying and praying that God would finally wake up and smell the coffee and what we want is the best thing. And it drives us bonkers that God will not get on board with our agenda. What King David found in his life was power and rest in God came from through counsel in the scripture, understanding what God was up to. Is our our suffering difficulty on God's role in home or is our suffering coming from frustration that God won't do what we want. That's something we all struggle with. God, where are you on this? And it's not, frust- it's not difficulty, it's not persecution, it's just simply we get frustrated that God won't do what we want. But it's important to recognize which one of us between us and God is God in this relationship. And it's God. When bad things happen to good people, good king, bad king, David the good king suffered because that was the road to his kingdom. In the gospel, people made righteous by Christ suffer because that's the road to glory. And he gives us the strength to endure in it. God, we thank you for your grace in Christ. God, none of us want to endure harsh difficulty and suffering. But God, there is some sense of peace and comfort that comes from knowing that when suffering and difficulty and trial comes, it's not because something's wrong. That's, that's the road we're on. Would you, God, by your grace, give us wisdom to know the work you're doing even within the, the great difficulty and suffering we endure day in and day out? 
God, my prayer would be that when a day of suffering comes, that this body of believers would be among those well-equipped by your Spirit to endure. To recognize this is the road you've given us, and on that great day, you will return in your glory. God, I pray even though for those of us who are enduring great suffering, that you would give us the strength of your Spirit to find our comfort and peace in you. And God, give us the power by your strength to open up with others around us that we would not feel alone in a crowded room, but we would find comfort in close relationship in the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with a song.